Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 12 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is J.D. Carlson, who is the owner of Plan Design Consultants, a third-party administrator that was started by his father and has been in business for nearly 50 years. J.D. is also the lead host of the popular and entertaining video show for financial advisors and other professionals in the retirement plan space called Retireholics. On today's episode, J.D. and I discuss the critical role of a great third-party administrator and how Plan Design Consultants strives to stand apart from other TPAs and deliver their smart, easy, awesome service model. We also discuss topics like fees, the convergence of health, retirement, and wealth, and how the hunger for data is shaping the industry and creating both benefits and potential risks. I had a blast recording this episode. JD's style is both colorful and humorous, but he's a real student of the industry, and I greatly appreciated his honest and thoughtful insights. And hopefully you'll get a kick out of our banner, especially as he repeatedly called me out for shamelessly plugging my latest book too much, which, frankly, I probably deserved. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast with my guest, J.D. Carlson. J.D. Carlson, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. I am super pumped about this conversation today. Thanks for having me, man. I'm stoked to be here. You know, I love me some 401k, so slap that together with a podcast and I'm game. I am two, two 401k nerds. So, you know, you are well known within the retirement industry as the owner slash CEO, let's say, of Plan Design Consultants. We'll talk a little bit about that. You're also the host, or I guess I should say co-host of Retireholics, which is a 401k industry. Oh, screw that. I don't want to disrespect your co-host, but uh, I think you're the talent. I'm the Justin Timberlake to their sync. That's for sure. <laughs> for for two guys in their are their late forties, that's a solid mid to late nineties boy band pull right there. Well done. So this is going to be a really cool show, I think, just in terms of talking a little bit about kind of your background and the industry and the role of third party administrators, what that looks like evolving. We'll talk about the industry a little bit, but. As we get started, why don't you share kind of with the audience, uh, for those who may not know, why don't you share a little bit about Plan Design Consultants and, you know, the history of the company and what that looks like, what you do, and and we'll go from there. Plan Design Consultants, a third-party administration firm. Probably important for me to clarify for any 401k peeps out there, we're a compliance-only firm, so we're not doing record-keeping, but uh, Founded in 1975 by my father, Paul Carlson. You know, I was four years old at the time. Transitioned to myself. He, my father was my guru man. Like I had shadowed him. He taught me everything I, I know about running a TPA firm and the industry as a whole. So thanks to him. But he's retired. I bought the firm from him. I've got 25 employees. We've got offices up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then down here, I'm in uh, Encinitas, California. I consider us a national TPA. So we service advisors across the entire country and really enjoy what we're doing, have a lot of fun. I think we'll talk a bit about retire holidays today. You try to, trying to bring what, let's see, plan design consultants is 
is trying to bring kind of a new spin to what it means to be a TPA. We're trying to bring a little bit of fun to the gig, trying to bring a little excitement to the gig. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, we definitely feel like we don't. If you stack up 100 TPAs, we think we stick out like a sore thumb. And that's on purpose. So, Yeah, I, I would say you are not the traditional TPA. Quite frankly, I think you know, you, you bring a lot of flair and energy to an industry that isn't really known for being, having that much personality. If we were in office space, you definitely would be Jennifer Anson's coworker at the Ruby Tuesdays or whatnot that wears all the flair. Um, and I think you bring up. <laughs> I was just going to say, if I was a good, I love the analogy, but if I was a good marketer and sales guy, which I am not, I would, you know, our tagline is different by design, you know? So yeah, it is our intention right to kind of stand out and, and catch your attention or the market's attention. So, yeah, it's a, but you know what else is, and we'll talk more about it, but it's just having fun, you know, have a lot of fun at what we do. I seem weird for yeah. 4K, but it's very, very true. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. And I've kind of learned this with this podcast as well is, you know, it's just fun to have conversation with really smart people that are experienced and that, that have perspectives. And the best part of this podcast for me is the learnings that come out of it, because I get to talk to, you know, I get to talk to people who care about this industry and, and care about the direction of it and just are dialed into kind of what's happening. I learn a lot along with kind of the audience. So let's talk about the role of a TPA, because as you mentioned, you know, you're trying to be different by design out of 100 TPAs. You absolutely are, you know, are sticking out like a sore thumb in a, in a very positive way. You know, I would say that the role of TPA over the past, you know, since I've been doing this for 15 years or so, you know, you've definitely seen, I think, the kind of TPA side of the world, quite frankly, has been kind of under pressure a little bit. You see more of these record keepers that are trying to, to go more bundled. In my latest book, The Fiduciary Formula, you know, I have a whole chapter dedicated to what to look for in a good TPA and how that's different than a record keeper and whatnot. So why don't you talk about, though, from your perspective, and I think you guys have done it very successfully and kind of carved out this niche where the role that you play and the role that that a really good TPA plays because you hear a lot about advisors, you hear a lot about record keepers. You know, I would say, and I don't want you to take this in the wrong way, but you know, a lot of TPAs have kind of struggled to carve out like their seat at the table in a lot of ways over the, you know, call it the last decade or so. I think you guys have done it successfully. So talk a little bit about how you think the interplay of a really good TPA in the mix, you know, what's important about that and and how does that relationship work between kind of advisor and between record keeper? And, you know, when it's working well, how do you see kind of the combination of a good independent TPA, a good independent advisor and a record keeper work really well on behalf of a plan sponsor? Yeah. First, let me, let me state that this concept or this, this contrast between bundled and unbundled, unbundled being the use of a TPA, a third party administrator, has been in existence since the beginning of time, right? Beginning of foreign K plan. So I kind of see it differently. I, I really feel like TPAs currently have really come more into the spotlight and people understand a TPA a lot more than if you were plan design consultants back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. So I kind of see it opposite to some people and to some of your comments. I think 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that was a much harder sell or conversation to have. Whereas today, I think TPAs, I know this for a fact, TPAs gain, gaining more and more market share, right? Like, so TPAs are more popular today than they were 
15 years ago and 20 years ago. Now, the second part of your question, why is that? Well, what does the TPA do? We do the compliance work, right? So ADP testing, ACP testing, 5,500 preps, document preparation, plan amendments, all the sexy stuff, right? And you could have that done by uh, independent third-party administrator. You can have that done by your, your bundled record keeper. I've always looked at it, though, as the fact of the matter is that it's going to be done by somebody <laughs> in a chair, sitting at a desk with a computer, with a salary, with experience, hopefully, you know, using the right software. So it's being done in both scenarios. And, and so my point to that is there's a cost that exists in both those scenarios, whether it's bundled or unbundled. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of times people look at it like, oh, well, if it's being done at the record keeper, well, then it's just free or it's cheaper or, or whatever that, you know, whatever they're making up in their head. And the reality is it's just simply not true, right? Like it's it's being done in both situations. So now you come to the point of like, well, how would you prefer to have it done? And, with, you know, it's obviously I'm selling my own family business here, but I would think most consumers would far prefer <laughs> to have a company doing that by the way, let's hit the pause button. Very important, very complicated, <laughs> very serious work. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. We're talking about ERISA and the part big, big, big time. Yeah, big time yep, stuff. Big time. So, would you rather have a firm that specializes in only that? And that's what they do. That's what they live, breathe, and sleep and do every day. They've got staff members that have been there for decades, you know, and, and just, you know, that's what they do. That's their niche. Or would you rather be housed in some dark gray, black and white cubicles in some massive building in the city underneath some bundled record keeper being super biased here <laughs> as I paint my picture. So, so there's that. And I, to me, there's, that's an easy choice. But then the next big thing is it's this advisor TPA relationship, right? So a lot of TPAs come to me and say like, you know, how do, how do we succeed? You know, what are, what are we going to do as things change into the future? And I kind of have a broken record response to them, which is, which I'll repeat here, which is we see our client as the advisor first, right? So as a TPA, if you can build your model around supporting the advisor and making that advisor more successful in terms of prospecting, marketing, a higher close ratio, point of sale, client retention, strategies, education, understanding regulation changes. If you can make an advisor more successful, then they are going to want to partner with you. They're going to want to work with you. And that, to me, that's the secret sauce. Like, of course, we need to do our work properly and we need to continue to focus on our own operations, our own efficiencies, our own quality of work, our own service metrics, all those types of things. But at the same time, we need to be obsessed with, are we a value add to the advisor? And, and think outside the box when we think about that question. You know, How can we be just so necessary to the advisor that given the choice between working bundled or unbundled, it'd be a no-brainer for that. That's, that's my take on it. No, I think they're, you know, I think those are great perspectives and hope I did not offend you with the question. I actually think I what you just said is, it's hugely important, and and I want to unpack a couple of different things because I, I, when I think of a really good TPA, I think of exactly what you said. It's compliance focused. It's technician focused, and I think what's happened just in the industry, and I write actually a lot about it in my book, is that 
you know, a lot of these big record keepers and, and I'm a big time nerd and really focused on retirement plan economics. I, I still think within the industry, I think there's a lot of excess within the industry kind of fee wise in terms of services being delivered. And there needs to be somebody who's kind of taking a, a third party. There needs to be some fiscal accountability and responsibility. What I, what I've seen though in the industry is that the talent, if you will, not to, to, dis- to take away from there being good people at record keepers, but these record keepers that have been getting by specialists have been getting pushed on fees. You know, what I've seen is that service levels are declining, right? That turnaround time for these, they they have to, right? Their turnaround time, because what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we're going to try to get more profitable at the record keeping level. And, you know, we don't have some of the levers like we used to, like with, you know, high cost active proprietary funds that we could get juice off of. And so what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we're going to right size our business. We're going to try to get more profitable. We're going to load up our day to day RMs and we're going to give them two or three times as many clients, which is going to impact you know, responsiveness. We're going to hire junior people because they're less expensive. And so those people aren't going to be as technical. They're cheaper. And so it's interesting. I would just say, I think we have a kind of on the bundled side, I think we have a, honestly, in my opinion, my experience, we have a, a service crisis in a lot of ways. And what's happening is I know for, you know, myself and our firm, and then, you know, my colleagues at other firms like ours, retirement plan specialists and advisory firms, we're experiencing indirect fee compression. And what I mean by that is clients are still having issues. And in some ways, those issues on the compliance side, because compliance issues, everybody wants to scare people about fiduciary responsibility. And not that that's not possible, but it's pretty improbable. But I tell you what, compliance failures and having to go through epicers and having to you know, self-correct or having to do a VCP filing, that stuff gets expensive all the time, gets expensive. And I think the quality or those errors are going up is the quality of call it the compliance function is going down in this desire to save costs. And so doing that. Not only are they expensive, but I just, as a, as a business owner myself, they're stressful. Like those are the types of things that really keep business owners up at night, right? The last thing you want to have problems with is the IRS and the department of labor and that type of stuff. So it's very, very stressful. Not only is it expensive. I want to piggyback on what you said, because I love that you said it. Your brain works so logically. We go through this fee compression. After this is over, can I just, can I get you on a quick call with my wife? Talk to her a little bit about my logical brain. 100%. Do me a salad. Absolutely. I I just feel like a lot of people don't think of it that way. And you've really connected the dots very logically. If, If you go through fee compression and you force these large record keepers to go from, say, you know, 60 basis points to 40 basis points or whatever it is, you know, I'm just pulling, making numbers up, but. Of course, they're going to they're gonna take measures and make changes, and, and you highlight them, so I won't go back over those all over again. But that is absolutely happening, as any normal business would. I think that's a big, big problem that doesn't get talked yeah. about enough. And so I'm glad that you're, you're bringing a spotlight to that, and I think more people should pay attention to that. And the thing that it does for good advisors like us is the clients still have issues. In some ways, their issues are increasing. And now you get these record keepers who are not as responsive. So something that used to get turned around, a question that got answered in a day takes a week or takes two weeks. And so then clients are are rightfully so. They're pulling us into the discussion. I would say relative to three years or five years ago, our team spends far more time on phone calls with clients trying to fix, just provide 
kind of run shotgun on, you know, operational issues or failures or things that came up and, and what it's creating is indirect fee compression for advisory firms because, you know, we can't necessarily charge more for that, but we're pitching in to help clients. And the more time you spend on that means the less time you can spend on kind of growing your business or your, working your on strategic of, issues. And your, so your cost of goods and your overhead is getting higher where your revenue is remaining. It's getting higher. Josh, it's not just the fact that, because uh, you may mention the fact that they're going to hire less experienced people. I also want to point out that a big kind of comparison or contrast between bundled and unbundled is these large corporations are built on internal operations, right? They love to create like workflow chains. Like it's got to be A, B, C, D. And the reality is that our industry is so complex and it's so right. many different curveballs and screwballs and things come at you from a compliance perspective, both as an administrator and as a plan sponsor that to try to answer them with the square peg, square hole type of thing really doesn't make sense in 30% of these scenarios. And so what you end up having is, right. is someone on the other end of an email or on the other end of a phone call that doesn't have the experience. And they're trying to answer questions and problems with some type of, of predetermined internal operation, <laughs> you know, cue. And it's, it's just a right. total cluster F, you know what I mean? Like, and so the reality yep. is, is that they can even make mistakes with their counsel and their advice. And so they start dragging a plan sponsor down what they think is the sequential solution. And the reality is, is they're digging themselves a deeper hole. And so here I go again, kind right. of promoting my own, own shop and my peers. But when you're working with a specialist, they've seen everything before, right? They've seen it before. Right. They've been in that chair for 25, 30 years. And the manager that's sitting 15 yards away from them in the corner office has been doing it for 35 years. And all the people around them, these are very experienced people. And so when a client comes to them with a problem, they not only are just answering it in this, they're not answering it in this robotic kind of bundled large corporation type of manner. They're actually anticipating the problem and the next three or four steps that will be a chain reaction. And sorry to be long winded here, but, and therefore giving them proper advice and proper solutions. And you just can't put a price tag on that. Right. And so I think there's a yeah. massive advantage to, to having specialists. And that's a chief, that's a, of course, type of thing to say. There's a huge advantage right. having people that are specialists that know what they're doing versus people that it's just part of the gig. You know? you know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, so I love this, this kind of line of thought. And I totally agree with you. At the end of the day, ERISA is so complex and it can't be kind of like a sideline gig. And I think that is where kind of specialists and, you know, the role that you guys play, like you said, a really good TPA, that compliance support, I think at the end of the day, you know, from an advisory perspective, you know, wanting to bring together the best people, the best, the specialists on the team, there's kind of a virtuous cycle, right? At the end of the day, when you have a good specialist on the compliance side, and that was kind of my point with, you know, I'm finding more operational issues today, I feel like than, than five years ago. And maybe that's just because it's yeah. easier to uncover them now, but it seems like more errors are being made, especially with bundled plans. So I think what you're talking about in this idea of kind of partnering with advisors, I see kind of like you being a secret weapon in some ways for specialist advisors, because 
there may be less time that's necessary having to hop on these operational calls with the plan sponsor and with the record keeper to, you know, unwind or figure out like next best step because an operational failure, an admin failure occurred. So having a really valuable TPA, I think is essential to really help that whole process. And the reality is, like you said, there's a cost allocation, like whether it's it's bundled and built in or not, there's still a cost to it. And in a lot of cases, what I found is like with even with advisory firms, with folks like plan design consultants, you know, maybe it's we charge a little bit higher than average fees than some, you know, jabroni that's out there that is kind of like a generalist, but it's not that much more expensive. In some ways, it can be the same or less cost if, if you know, there is no fiscal accountability. So I think that role of TPA, what you're talking about, and it sounds like that's really what you kind of technician experience. I think costs, I believe costs have to be reasonable, right? Like we're talking about people's retirement or we're talking about right. fees have to be within a certain line. So don't get me wrong. I'm not, what I'm about to say is it's not being aware and sensitive to fee structure. However, we've talked about the severity of this industry. We've talked about the importance of it. We've talked about the liability of it. And I'm a small business owner myself, right? I mean, with two dozen employees, I'm a micro small business. I'm happy to pay five thousand extra dollars in a year, ten thousand extra dollars for a better paperless system, a better printer system. Hell, I'll pay ten grand for a better employee, right? You know, so I will spend thousands and thousands of dollars to have something that I think is a better fit for my company without blinking an eye. And I'm a small business. I'm not a big company. With that said, I also think that we need to be very careful. Record keepers, advisors, and TPAs, and I'm going to focus on advisors and TPAs right now, and I'm going to kind of hyper-focus on advisors. We've gone through this fee compression. I think we need to be very careful about promoting our solutions as a whole, as an industry, in this kind of simple, cheap, type of flow. You know, if if your go-to thing is to spreadsheet and find your clients the most affordable option, and that's the value that you're putting in front of them, is like that's that's how you're now characterizing our product as a whole. Your product, my product, mm-hmm. and the record keepers product as like it's it's some type of commodity or like you're going down the street to like get a car wash or something. And the reality is it should be looked at much more like you're you're choosing a, a CPA or an attorney or any, and I think I'll shut up with this, but I think advisors should treat our product that is form case as being complex, embrace the fact that it's fucking complex because it is. And therefore look to sell more robust professional solutions that your clients would benefit from. And I, I say this I'm kind of a soapbox mentality because I feel like there's just this huge tidal wave going the other way. And it's people just trying to win the plan and trying to make a buck and they are hurting themselves for the future and they're hurting our industry as a whole. I think, and when I say you, I'm talking to advisors all out there in the world. When, when you sit down with your client, think about what your client really wants and I don't think it matches up with, with low cost. I, I don't really think that that's their goal. I think why they're hiring you as a consultant and putting their trust in you 
is because they want, they're putting themselves in your hands and they want you to guide them towards solutions that will keep them safe, of course, be cost efficient, but be the right prudent decisions. And therefore, going bundled, fee compression, this is easy, don't worry about it, it's, you know, this is the lowest cost, it just seems to be so counterintuitive to me, like, that's not what's right for right. an industry. Sorry. No, that's all good. I mean, I think the, I think the problem, I still see there's a ton of fat within the industry. And I think partly, you know, it's an interesting thing with a lot of plan sponsors. And I agree with a lot of what you said. You know, I do think fees are still a black box for most companies. Like when you're starting to bring in specialists like plan design consultants or Greenspring advisors or, you know, our brethren that are out there. Absolutely. I think offering a premium service, but there's a lot of plans, especially, you know, if you look probably 95, maybe 98% of plans are under $10 million. And, I think it's, you know, the big companies, they they have the resources and the experience to kind of hire really good specialists. But down market, you get a lot of people that are, I think, getting fleeced. And I just say that not to more. It's more of a critique on kind of the industry is that, you know, the problem with companies and this is a whole different tangent that I could go off on is, you know, they're the ones who, who hire folks like us. But they don't use their own money in most cases to pay for it, right? They're using plan assets, right? So there's not a high incentive. Like as a small business owner, you yeah. probably pay for healthcare directly for some of your healthcare costs, right? For your employees. Sure. It's my so it second highest line item. Yeah. Yeah. So so you have a strong incentive to basically try to, you know, you want good service, but you want to balance that with reasonable cost within the extent that you can. If you could just shove all yeah. the healthcare costs like into the plan and it never hit your P&L as a business owner, you might be less inclined uh, to less incentive to really start to to negotiate in a really really good way. I just think that's a natural. I mean, me as a as, you know, co-founder of Greenspring, you, same type of thing. Can, I don't think you can argue with what you just said, but let me try to anyways. I love it. I love it. Sure. <laughs> The 401k fees are borne by the participants, aka the plan assets. Now, of course, and this is the basics of ERISA law, right? Like, well, then if you're making poor decisions and you're eating into their future and their retirement, you're, you're literally taking right. money out of the pockets of the people that work for you. And so, therefore, you right. know, and I, we won't get, we, I digress. We won't go to all that. But so it's slightly different in that sense. I, of course, do not believe that there should be a black box. And I think that that's a huge yeah. problem. So in the, you mentioned the south of 10 million. Do plan sponsors understand their fees? No, they don't. So there is a black box that exists. However, I feel as though that's the advisor's role. That's why yeah. they have a financial advisor is to make sure that the, that the black box, they pop open the hood, they show them the engine and help them make decisions that they can be yeah. confident in. However, I don't think that it's the large market, the mega market that can afford the specialists, I actually believe that more problems occur in small plans. So my my larger clients are time consuming for sure. And I've got clients with thousands and thousands of employees, but they've got solid HR teams, you know, and, and they've yeah. got great accounting software and payroll syncs. And they're, they're just re actually really easy to work with. It's the six person firm and the 15 person firm and the, you know, the 23 person firm where shit goes wrong. You know, when, when you have yeah. a smaller census, when you make a move and you make that move three degrees to the left, it creates far bigger vibrations and problems. 
And so to me, it's more necessary in the small market. I think that's a misnomer where people are always like, oh, well, you know, small plans, they're a piece of cake. Like, and and I look at that and I laugh my ass off because I'm like, no, it's the small plans are the pain in the ass. It's the big plans right. that work smoothly. So, anyways, again, yeah. you say up. I, I think that's down, a great. I say right, I say left. But I no, <laughs> I I actually think I'm on the same page with you. I guess my point being is what I wish if I could if I could wave a magic wand, I would have companies pay more direct costs for folks like you, and folks like folks like Hallelujah. us. And instead of paying it out of the plan and getting kind of a free ride on kind of your participants paying for it, you should pay for it out of your general assets. Because once you do that and your incentives are then aligned to say, you know what, I'm willing to pay for a premium service. So that's a whole other tangent. I I would love to see that. We've seen small kind of movements towards that. I wish they would catch more fire and that would be a bigger trend for obvious reasons. We don't see it as a bigger trend. But don't forget too, like if you were paying, the more you pick up the bill as a plan sponsor for the costs associated with your plan, the better you are from a fiduciary liability standpoint. I mean, absolutely. I, so, so it's a great decision in that way. It is a business expense. Right. You know, there are certain tax credits now and things. So anyways, I'd love yep. to see that. And and to the advisors out there, I think people get caught up in the all or nothing too. Like it's like, you're either going to do it the black box way you're talking yeah. about, or you're going to do it the new way that you're talking about. And people get cold feet. Right. You can go anywhere in between. You can create a hybrid. So just take off small consumable bites with your plan sponsors to start shifting some of those costs from the assets to right. their writing a check for it and, and explain to them why it's a good thing and just kind of start that voyage, you know, start down that path. It doesn't have to be yeah. all or nothing. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. I mean, we found that over the over time and I'm a big advocate for really aggressive implementation of automatic features and, you know, my first book Fixing the 401k in 2008, I talked all about, you know, automatic enrollment at 6% what's the, what's the over, escalation what, up to 15%. What's the over under on how many times you mention your book in each pod? I'm going to go do the stats. I'm going to listen to the back. I would say it's probably 8 or 10 times. I mean, <laughs> look, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm trying to, you know, I, Nobody's ever going to confuse me of being Ernest Hemingway, but you know, I think it's, I think it's worth a read. If you got insomnia, anybody who's listening, if you're having trouble sleeping at night for whatever reason, by chapter three or four of either of my books, you will be sleeping like a baby. You know, you talk a lot about like you guys kind of market this, which I love this kind of different branding, but this kind of smart, easy, awesome service model, I think. Mm-hmm. Talk yeah, about that just yeah. real quick. I want you, I, I want to understand like what is that? Like what what do you mean by that? And how do you make things smart, easy, and awesome for plan sponsors and for advisors? Yeah, smart, easy, awesome is kind of started from it's like our internal chant, you know, if you will. So, and then it evolved to kind of how we brand our operation and our client experience. So, so smart and smart, easy, awesome just means like, hey, we get it, you, you know the most important thing from us. And that's why smart is first in this list of three words is this shit's got to be done. Right. Right. You want quality work, you know, done by experts that keeps you right with the department of labor and the IRS. And so that's smart, intelligent work. That's what you want from an experienced firm like plan design consultants. The easy part of it goes more to the client experience and, as a second generation family owned business who learned from my father, I think the TPA of the seventies and the eighties and the nineties 
was very complex when you looked at it from the client's perspective. You know, there was lots of moving pieces, lots of information changing hands all throughout the calendar year, lots of complicated letters and notices and and warnings about certain IRS regs and all this kind of stuff. And I think my dad was proud of that. When I came along and took over the steering wheel or the helm of the business, I wanted to look at a lot of those things and see where I could simplify, you know, where could I take something that maybe we could have the client do less. And, and so I started to just look through the entire user experience from A to Z and start to pull out things where I thought it, we could make it a little easier for the client. So that's the easy concept is creating an, an easier client experience where we can do a lot of the heavy lifting, almost keep you in the dark on things that you don't need to know about and just kind of get it done for you and just come to you and bother you for the things that we find are really, really paramount, you know, really, really necessary. So that's a winning value prop, by the way. Yeah. I'd love that. Yeah. It's a balancing act for sure though, because you've got to make tough decisions about in this, like we said, that nauseam, how complex our industry is. So you got to make tough decisions about what things you, you, you uh, shadow them from or protect them from Uh, the awesome part then comes to kind of throwing some pizzazz on it. Right. So this kind of starts to, maybe blend towards this retire holics concept, but uh, it's like, okay, how can we take you out of the norm and kind of make interacting with us fun? And so we do that by sprinkling humor in our emails and in our communications with our clients, getting rid of the jargon, you know, and using a bit of slang in some of our communication. So I've really taken my company from my father's way, which a lot of the communication pieces and a lot of our interaction with clients would almost be like you're speaking with an attorney or something. And I've tried to to evolve it to, or some might say devolve it to a uh, where you're talking to your neighbor, you know, you're talking to your friend. And so when you when you interact with plan design consultants, you're gonna find this kind of more like again, kind of fun, kind of loose, and hopefully I put a smile on your face, or you you're reading the census collection in January and you chuckle. You know, if that happens for me, then I feel like that's a win. So that's smart, easy, awesome in a nutshell. Do you have like the not safe for work thing on there for the communications? This is my, this is the 12th episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. This is the first time I'm going to have to check the box with my podcast host, I think around explicit content because you've thrown some zingers in there today so far. So that is a, that is a first with the Fiduciary You <laughs> podcast. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So, so anyways, let's talk about retireholics because that is something that you launched a few years ago, really well known within the industry. You guys are kind of like YouTube stars. What's really cool is you bought, brought some fun and some flair and some really good thinking. You've kind of humanized, I feel like, our industry in a lot of ways. So talk about retireholics. What is it? How'd you come up with the idea? You know, what have you learned from it over the years as you've been uh, you've been doing it? It's changed a lot. Originally, we just got together and my brother, who's Brandon Carlson, who's the producer for Retireholics, you know, five, six years ago was like, we need to get into video, right? So if you think about back in that day, much like advisors, you know, we were doing PowerPoint presentations at steakhouses, right? And, uh, you know, combining our efforts with record keepers to bring people to a small hotel room and give them coffee and bagels in the back of the room and and talk to them for three hours, sometimes with CE credit or whatever. Yeah. So that's classic kind of marketing, right? And then evolved to webinars with technology. And it was my brother who was really like, 
why aren't we putting this stuff on video in that same type of education and then just letting people view it on demand, right? So they don't have to show up for a webinar on Wednesday at 10 a.m. Just freaking create the content and then put it out there and then they can just consume it whenever they want. And so I was like, okay, you're right. You're right. We got to get it on video. And originally that idea was Chad Johansson, who's one of the members of NSYNC for our original analogy earlier, one of my co-hosts, sorry, not co-hosts, one of like my backup dancers, whatever you want to call it. Backup, a, he's a backup, he's a, yeah. he's a backup dancer. Definitely the backup, backup dancer. dancer. I'm going to use that one tomorrow on tomorrow's show. He, uh, we, it was going to be me and him in suit and ties in our conference room, you know, kind of discussing <laughs> the 401k industry and certain things because we thought we'd bring our own. Do you own a tie? And, uh, I used to have freaking cufflinks, man. I was all about it. And so we were going to talk 401k stuff. And then we had, we actually had two younger people in the office. They're kind of rebels. They used to hit Nerf golf balls around the office. And they said, Hey, you guys are going to do this. Like you should just do it, you know, like have some fun with it. And so we literally got in a little powwow back in the server room and started brainstorming like, okay, how can we make this different? So it would kind of stand out. It just snowballed from there. You know, that day one, it came up with, I think we should drink some beer on the show. That kind of got chuckles and laughs. And then it was like, we named it that first day. We're going to call it Retireholics and the K is going to have parentheses. And so, you know, there's beer involved, alcoholics, retireholics, but you know, you're obsessed with it like a, like an addict would be. And then it was like, let's make it crazy like let's throw in some games and fun and we'll kind of put all this stuff to like supplement this really boring content of 401k so we went off and running i think we were filming within like two weeks and it was horrible the audio sucked and i remember even being nervous like sitting there like why am i nervous we're filming some stupid show on youtube and then it just evolved man and it's like we're five six years later and it's been a lot of fun. It evolved to having like big time guests. We ended up getting at a certain point, it was like three, four years in where big national conferences, you know, we were getting their attention and they were like, we want you guys to come and do your show on stage, you know? And so we, that's been a lot of fun. Like that was never the intention. That was never written up in the original plan. And now I would say like pre and hopefully post COVID, like that was my most fun part was Getting up and doing right. it in front of hundreds of people on a stage was like a kick that we had never anticipated. And then we just, uh, not to be like book plug guy like you, but uh, <laughs> like, phenomenal guests, man. I mean, just like industry titans, like icons of our industry that I reach out to an email and say, hey, do you want to be on our silly beer drinking show and, and just kind of hold my breath and they write back like, yeah, I've heard of it. Oh my God, I can't wait to be on, you know? And so that's just been so much fun. And okay, so all the fun aside, and I told you before we started this, like I, the podcast that I've listened to of yours, I, I really got a lot of value out of. And I thought you almost had this like journalistic nature. Yes, I can tell your wife these same things later. And, and so I was really impressed by your ability to talk to your guests and kind of really hash out the subject matter. Well, that's also a goal of retireholics, right? Like in the midst of the beer drinking and the Smirnoff ice chugging and the silly games are not to get all serious now, but are some very relevant retirement plan conversations with 
huge guests that have huge brains and have, you know, massive careers. And the whole time we're just really trying to provide value to the audience, which is intended for advisors, but has really kind of evolved into advisors, TPAs, industry professionals, et cetera. And then just have a lot of fun with it at the same time. <laughs> I get up for it. We do it every, my God, every Thursday through COVID. And I get fired up every Thursday. Like I'm going out to perform a friggin' rock concert, you know, like, okay, what's it going to be? Like? Let's do this shit, you know? So anyways, that's your tire, Alex. <laughs> well, I think, uh, whatever that I think meant. you, f- whatever that all meant. No, but I, I do think. I think it, you've done an awesome job with it. And again, bringing some personality and some flair to an industry. And and quite frankly, we love this stuff, but I mean, it can drone on. And it most of our clients don't wake up saying in the morning, like, I can't wait to dig into like really complex ERISA stuff. So I think you guys have done a really good job packaging it. You guys have become very popular, obviously, from that perspective. Can I tell you real quick, just something on behalf of the industry? Like, I, no. Before you do that, can I plug my book real quick one more time? Sure. Before, no, please don't. Go? Please don't. No. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I think it's always going to be hard to get planned sponsors to want to consume that stuff. Yeah. I think maybe next next to impossible. And so I, I really feel like I agree. it's the, the advisor is the conduit, right? Like it's the advisor that needs to understand all this stuff. And so for us, it's a lot easier in that advisors are intended audience. And so I think good advisors that want to be good at 401k should be excited about consuming information like that. And especially if it can be fun on a Thursday night or with a live show on a stage. But I also want to let you know that as boring and, and conservative as our industry might be, that's one thing that I've learned that I didn't realize is Fred Reich, iconic ERISA attorney, who I used to walk by in conferences early in my career and be like, Oh my God, there's Fred Reich. Like what this is like right. a walking God of Arissa in his suit and tie and conservative. He's a personality, man. He's, he's fun. He's, yeah. he's like a, he's charismatic. He's cool. And he loves what he does. And so it's been, it's been a blast. Yes. It's been a blast. Wrote the forward to the book. Solid. He wrote the forward to the book. I appreciate that softball you just gave me right there, JD. Awesome. Yeah, you're right. People in the industry are solid. They love what they do. People in the yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about. You've had a chance to interview lots of people, and and like you said, lots of kind of big hitters in the industry. Talk about you know the handful of things, a couple of things where you think over the next three to five years, like where is this industry going, and where do forward thinking. TBAs like plan design consultants, advisors, like where do they need to to really kind of focus and start to invest or over-invest in order to kind of skate to where the puck is going as opposed to where it is today? Imagine me running to my garage right now and grabbing my tin foil hat and because I really have one and I'm placing it upon my head. Our industry is going, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's going through this massive change. And there's there's a couple of huge things that are happening. First and foremost, it's the importance of data and specifically participant data. The big tech world is looking at retirement plan data and licking their chops in terms of to know that type of information for an individual it opens up all types of doors for them in terms of what they could sell them and strategically sell them. 
you know, the same way a, you know, a Google search brings something specific to you or Amazon or whatever. So anyways, they're very, very excited about that. That's concerning to me as an industry person because I'm starting to hear of strategies and plans where entities will give away 401k services, literally give it away. And that could be your services as an advisor. That could be my services as a TPA. That could be record-keeping services. They will give it away to have access to that data to be able to sell these, or what I would call monetize the participant, okay? And so that, to me, with the tinfoil hat on, creates this really strange moment going forward. As 401k evolves, and I think it's a good thing that we're evolving, and I think we should use technology. And I'm, I'm actually not against using data to strategically, I shouldn't say sell, but to strategically like put the right product or solution in front of the person that needs it. Like I think those are all like phenomenal things. My concern is, is like who's in charge of it and why, and what is their motivation? And so the tinfoil hat guy says, I'd like to see advisors, Josh, in control of that stuff. You know, I'd like to see the advisor as the the guide to the plan sponsor and really the quarterback, the person in charge of the plan and how data is being used and and what technologies are being used to to make that plan more efficient. I don't want to see it in the hands of the record keeper. I don't want to see it in the hands of of other third-party entities and, and call me old school, I feel like advisors have beating hearts and have integrity and have ethics. And I feel like large companies are after nothing more than greed and the mighty dollar and profitability. And so I almost see this kind of war happening, you know, between the two groups. Now, with that said, it gets complicated because there are advisors that don't want to have to do any of that stuff. They don't want to be involved in monetizing the participant. They don't want to be involved in, and this is the other big thing that's happening is, right, this convergence of health, wellness, and retirement. And so there's talk of the advisor of the future being, or the advisor firm of the future, being able to help clients in all three of those spaces, health, wealth, and 401k, which is very different from 15 years ago. And, and if you talk to JD from 15 years ago, I would have hated that idea. I would have been like, oh, my God, no, I want a 401k to be a 401k specialist only. Now I'm warming up to the idea or being forced to with a gun to my head, warming up to the idea of, no, it's probably going to be a more convergence type of solution. And so now I'm getting on that train, that bandwagon and kind of advocating for it. But now I want it to be done by the right people. So anyways... Really interesting, dicey times right ahead of us, and they're going to happen so quickly. And and so it's going to be crucial how advisors deal with that. And so, yeah, that's that's what my brain is consumed with that so much so that I want to bring it up on Retireholics every Thursday. And my buddies there, my backup dancers are like, oh, God, are we talking about this again? Like, can JD stop, you know? But I think it's just so important. It 100% is important. And I, I actually think that is the next, you know, I think for the the foreseeable future, fees are going to continue to be a hot topic of ERISA litigation. I mean, if you look in 2020 alone, the number of ERISA cases filed around 401k fees was up fivefold. So I just think that's like we're in the still in the early innings of fee litigation. But I think so, I think data security 
and data privacy, which I would, you know, I would describe data security as more of protecting participant data, you know, personally identifiable information data from being kind of hacked. We saw in April, there was a case filed against Abbott Labs around, you know, a participant claimed that, you know, she had like, I don't know, $250,000 stolen from her account. So I think litigation around data security, but the Vanderbilt case that was settled with Vanderbilt, you know, last year, year before, whatever the timing was, had a specific provision, non-monetary damages around protecting data privacy and that, you know, record keepers giving away kind of services or using that data in order to market. And I'm with you. I mean, I, I, I'll put my tinfoil hat on. I, I agree with everything that you said. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the essence of being a fiduciary is, you know, I would equate that to being an advocate and, you know, who is going to stand it's so important to figure out alignment of incentives. Like what isn't, what's, what's driving the incentives of someone. And once you do, like you'll get a sense of what they're going to be motivated to do. So I love that you're talking about that. And I think we're going to see both in the real world and, and in competing for business in the court system, I think you're going to see more and more litigation around some of that, that cross-selling and how do you kind of create the rules of engagement and how does a plan sponsor create the rules of engagement with their service providers in terms of, the services you provide, like what does that mean and what's what's out of bounds? So I think that's a great point. So as we see kind of I like that, that data angle evolving. Unfortunately, and or fortunately, I mean, Wall Street is so powerful though, Josh, that I think the right. only types of rules we're going to see are going to be around disclosure and kind of signing off of the plan sponsor. So I think realistically, right. I don't see this happening any other way. We're going to see down the line is like, look, you're signing up with Record Keeper X, and on page 34 of your contractual agreement, it's going to talk about the fact that they have partnered with other fourth-party entities that are, you know, going to use your data to strategically sell you this. Or they've created their own, and you're going to initial the box, and you're going to sign off on the fact that they can have access to your data, and you're going to hear about it right. the same way we talk about fiduciary responsibility today. So there's no stopping that bus is what I'm saying. Like it's going to happen and it should, to be honest with you, it should like we should see a 401k in the future that can really help participants on all things, financial planning and wealth management. I think that would be a plus, you know, to do that, but it just needs to be done properly and it needs to be done right. And I think that's where things are going to get really exciting. And, and that's where, yeah. here's my pitch right now. I'm waving this huge flag. And what I would like to see is financial advisors across the country revolt. It's a revolution to stand for their power and their position with what I interpret to be their clients. And they need to hold the record keepers under their foot. They need to put the advisor's foot on the throat of the record keepers and say, look, these are our clients. We're the ones with integrity. We're the ones with ethics. And we're going to force you to build and do things to support us. If you cross that line and you start going around our back to take advantage of our clients and sell them things that they're not aware of or whatever, then you've gone too far and we're going to ostracize you from the industry and we'll show you the power that advisors have across the country. And I just, I want to see that happening now before it gets too far away from us. And, and these guys kind of just backdoor you on all this stuff. 
there's some major tinfoil hat shit going on right there, right? Big time. A hundred percent. Man, you should run for office, JD. I mean, I love it. I love the passion. I will lead that revolution, but I will not be, we'd be wearing horns or some furry vest. I'll be in a suit and tie or something. Okay. Got it. What else do you think just in terms of where are we evolving? So obviously there's kind of the data, the data piece around that. You know, you mentioned, talk a little bit about from your perspective, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, this convergence of health and 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 wealth and planning and wellness, which is, you know, if I got to hear the word financial wellness, the, the phrase financial wellness again, I think I might throw up just in terms of uh, not that I don't believe in financial wellness, but I've talked a lot about it on the show. It just you ask 10 people, you get 10 different you know, definitions of what financial wellness is. So what's your take on kind of the whole wellness movement from your perspective? Well, and the fact that you don't offer that puts you in an objective position. I think I you know. can uh, render an opinion objectively. I hopefully I feel like I'm pretty objective most of the time, but I, uh, we've had huge wellness advocates on the show, right? You know, CEOs and founders of wellness companies. And I'm with you. I always kind of end up with my head spinning around on <laughs> what it is they're doing. They all seem to be tackling it differently. I think the biggest negative against wellness right now is, is this ability to actually make an impact. You know, like you can go ahead and offer it to a firm of 500 employees. And when you really start to dig into the data, it's like, okay, 30 of them have, are using this solution, you know, and of those 30 that are using it, only half of them are even using it in any kind of significant way. And so, so there's this kind of impact problem that we're having with wellness and I think that's a big deal. I think that's something that we shouldn't give up on it. We need to keep moving forward, but we need to keep evolving and trying to find better ways. And I, I think the real answer to that is, is and it's a tough one, but is a combination of plan sponsor involvement and technology. So we, we need the plan sponsor to be the advocate for it. We really need the advisor, you know, that conduit, that quarterback to be the advocate for it. And then these wellness solutions need to use real people and technology together to service the participants. And here we go again. This is what makes this industry so fun is it gets dicey in that, like you said, people, it's like, so you're going to have this bank of CFPs that are answering financial planning or wellness questions for participants. Doesn't that step on the toes of the retirement plan advisor? And I think that much like my earlier tinfoil hat stuff, we need to find solutions where the advisor chooses, right? The advisor toggles like if you are an advisor shop and you've built up your own <laughs> cubicles and banks of people that can handle questions from your plans and their people, then great. Hats off to you. But maybe your, your advisor shop, you focus on retirement plans, you believe in wellness as an add-on solution, and you need to outsource that wellness to, to someone else. I think that's okay, too. But what you can't ignore right now is in the future, and we're going to see this from the top up, right? And usually what happens in the big mega market tends to fall its way down to the micro market. And we know this because of massive acquisitions, right? We know this because these what's happening in terms of this convergence of health, wealth, and retirement is happening in these huge like $100 million plus billion dollar deals, Right. And it's because these people are setting up their chess pieces to win this game in the long run. And so I think that advisors should be aware of that. They should be massively aware of that. And they should be building a business that 
when they go to see their prospects or their current clients, they have solutions that are health, wealth, and retirement. I think that's a choice that many of them should make, which again is counter to what I would have told you 10 years ago. I would love the idea of a 401k specialist. I think it's going to be different going forward. With that said, I think we always talk about these macro topics and lose sight of the fact that there's always going to be niche players. Like, I don't care how cool technology is, how much this convergence has happened to those three things, and how big these massive national players get. There's always going to be a successful advisor that's a retirement plan niche that can walk into a prospect and say, F all that stuff. I'm here. I'm on the ground. I'm an expert. I can walk you through these things. And and those people are going to be successful. I just also would love to see that same. I'd like to see that, that smart entrepreneur advisor consider the future of, well, could I possibly make more revenue? If I was selling these three things and selling such a bad word, but if I was offering my clients, you know, these other things that could help them. And by the way, do kind of Venn diagram with 401k and retirement planning. And here's the best analogy. I came up with it on the spot several weeks ago and now I'm abusing it every time I can. It's like the advisor owning a, a gas station. And then that advisor saying all successful gas station owners, I think, the good ones say eventually like, shit, I should have like a mini mart in my gas station where I can sell people Cokes and Doritos and sticks of gum. And then they evolve. And that's where they make all their money, dude. Right. That's where they make all their money. Or you know where they make all their money? I've learned, Hey, we should do car repair. So we should have an actual garage where people can come and get oil changes and get things fixed in their car. Cause that's a big revenue source. And then lastly, like let's put on one of those fancy car washes on the side, you know, where people can take their cars through. You're just maximizing your your footprint as a gas station. And, and I would argue, and here's the good part of it. It's not as though you're selling your you're, you're this evil empire selling. You're creating convenience for your clients. And so I think that advisors should think about, I'm not saying they have to, but I think it would be smart for them to think about how can they have a gas station type business into the next 5, 10, 15 years. Well, I, you know, it's interesting in this world where things are getting more complex. And I do think that's a, the kind of the, the plan design consultants value prop that you talked about earlier, I think is a good one. I think it's a good one for advisors to think about too is, you know, we want to talk about like the technical, the nuts and the bolts and the bits and the bites, which you need to have that technical capability and those chops. But at the end of the day, if you think about our clients, our mutual clients, our plan sponsors, they are being asked to do more with less. They are being, they have a lot more work on their plate. And I do think the message of, hey, this is about a good user experience and it's about convenience. We're going to only come to you on the stuff that you really need to know about and the other stuff. Like, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it for you. And, you know, I do think there's a compelling value proposition around that. The downside, I would just say in terms of, and and the only counter, I guess I would have to your gas station analogy, which from a pure like business perspective, I'm entrepreneurial, like hundred percent, because I think the research is strong that, you know, it's why your bank wants you to invest with them and they want you to use their credit card and they want you to refinance your house with them is because the research is compelling. If you can get multiple services, a client using multiple services, the switching costs, they just becomes that much more sticky because, oh, now I got to, if I leave, I got to get new this and I got to get a new that. And 
the inertia is really hard to kind of overcome behaviorally. And then I think the other thing, the really successful, you know, and I guess maybe it, maybe it's a wondering in that gas station analogy, it's hard to do everything really, really well. So do you start to see, you know, enterprising firms joint venture? Hey, we're going to come together and, sure, you know, bro. let's figure out building a business where we focus on this, you focus on that, but we're going to do it as one company and we'll figure out a way to, to joint venture and, bring excellence to each one of these kind of components of the gas station, but not necessarily being delivered by the same company where they're probably going to be really good in one area and mediocre in the rest, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. I think if you're that gas, we're going to stick with this gas station analogy and hopefully if you're listening <laughs> and you're following along, do you think that, that, that person that owns that gas station knows anything about car washing and, and goes over to the side of their building and like builds that car wash. No, they, they, they had a third party come in and build for them the car wash on the, the side of their space. And they, they put all the right. tech in for them and they probably maintain it. I know they do. They maintain it and come back and fix things that go wrong with it. It's not as though the gas station person built the car wash for Christ's sakes. So I, I think that the same is going to happen in, in our industry. And I think there's a lot, I don't think I know there's lots of companies that are working really hard to build those solutions for advisors. And so to me, I know that that's the negative. I know that that's the con, right? You cannot, what are they? I don't know. I've stuck with analogies, not analogies, but sayings like, you can't be the expert of all those things, right? Like you're going to, you're going to suck at some of those things. And I kind of say in a sense, like that's irrelevant. You're going to find professionals to do those things and partner with you. And your job as an entrepreneur is to vet those out and make sure that they fit well in your puzzle piece for what you're offering to your client. The guy or girl that runs that gas station also doesn't know how to, is not a mechanic necessarily. And so they're not going to go and then right. fix the engine of the cars that are in the in the garage. They're going to hire someone to come in and fix those cars. And it's just entrepreneur 101. So don't be so intimidated by it. I feel like we're so caught up in what we think a financial advisor has looked like for the last 20 years that we're unwilling to like think creatively about what it could look like going forward. Like get out of your own way and start to think about being a business owner that can put these different solutions in place. Yeah. So my four kids have all gone through their Lego phases and my seven-year-old right now is addicted to Legos. I mean, all the time. And I think what you're talking about, it's an interesting moving from kind of working in the business as a technician to becoming more enterprising and saying, hey, I'm going to focus on being more of like the architect that's going to take these Lego pieces and how do I kind of put them together so that they fit in a really cool design. That's a really interesting perspective, you know, that you're talking about with kind of your gas station analogy. And it'll be interesting to see what evolves. I think we're in a really exciting time as I agree with you. Everybody wants to talk about technology, but I still believe technology is great in a very, you know, decision tree workflow, you know, if A plus B equals C formulaic, it's really, really good. But as we know, within the industry, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in financial planning, whether it's in ERISA 401k, 403b, is it's kind of like the, 
it was like the sweater, like the thread on the sweater, right? You, you, you pull what you think is just one thread. Next thing you know, the sweater starts to unravel because it's multivariate. And in a multivariate world, I still think we're a long ways from just the machines being able to anticipate and, and, you know, do everything necessary. I think there is that human element, that marrying of kind of machine and human. I totally agree with you from that perspective. So long um, lived the financial advisor. I have seen for decades record keepers create really impressive technology that, you know, you look at it and you're like, wow, this is cool. Like, this is really, really cool. Right. And then I see it just gather dust because nobody uses it. And so to me, I really see the advisor firm as the entity going forward that I guess the best way I can picture it in my head sits those 75 participants down in a room, you know, has already gotten the buy-in from the decision makers of the fiduciaries and says, look at this tech. This tech is sick. Everyone should be on this. This is why. Let me walk you through it. And we have goals. You know, you set goals for yourself and for the plan sponsor to say, look, we believe in this tech so much that we've got a five-year plan. And by the time we get to year five, we want to have like 80% usage, you know, and it's, it's you then that has the, the ability to move the needle. And so the, again, preaching the choir, but I agree with you. I don't think tech can do it on its own. It's going to need a human to really push it along and be the cheerleader and be the person that's accountable to make it work. But the only way for an advisor to even come close to having a gas station is to utilize tech just from an efficiency perspective. Like there's just no, there's no yeah. possible way you're going to do it from a man hours perspective. So you're going to have to use tech, but it won't work without you. Yeah. I think the advisor of the future, I've been starting to say this. I don't know if anybody's listening, but you know, I do think we are living in a world that is more complex. Clients are requiring more. It's harder to differentiate. You know, the story you tell, and I think the story that I've told throughout my career, like five or 10 years ago, 10 years ago was very differentiated. Everybody kind of says the same thing right now. And, and it goes back to what we talked a little bit earlier about fee compression. When everybody says the same thing, whether they do it or not is a totally different story, but, and whether they deliver, but when everybody says the same thing, you know, you just say, okay, well, what's the cheapest and what's the least risk? And so it kind of the lowest common denominator. I do believe that. A successful advisory firm in the future has to do two things. Number one, they're going to need to niche down. You can't just say, hey, we do, we're a fit for everybody. Because if you're a fit for everybody, you're really a fit for no one. So I think niching down, and I don't think it's going to be enough to say I'm a 401k specialist, if you will. You know, I need to be a 401k specialist for civil engineering firms between 100 and 750 employees that have these different demographics. Like that's more of a niche. And then I think the other one is, being on the front end of finding, and then this is the key, successfully implementing technology to be able to deliver a better experience to clients and to be able to scale your business. And, you know, that's the real difficulty is, you know, it's easy to find cool tech. The harder thing is like, how do you implement it so it actually, so it actually works? Thank God that it's not all super easy. I mean, that's what's fun about running a business, right. making those choices and putting those things in place. And I agree with everything that you just said, even though I know I argued with you earlier. I think those are perfect. <laughs> I heard someone say the other day, this uh, this niche 
thing is that because of COVID and because of our acceptance of virtual stuff, like it's actually going to be much easier to be niche because you can expand your geography quite a bit now in terms of, and so to be niche might be something even better than before. And then I want to leave you with these thoughts is that you talked about all advisors feeling like they're kind of sounding and the same, right? They look and feel and act and walk the scene. I think that this convergence of health, wealth, retirement, and this tap gives them the opportunity as they put their Lego pieces together, they'll become more and more different from their peers, right? Whatever Lego set you build, your gas station is going to look very different from the next gas station because of the tech that you chose to partner with. And because of how you've decided that you so intelligently put how you decide to make it work and and actually have an impact. So that's it, man. I think we've solved the world's problems right there. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I was talking a couple of years ago to a CEO of a really large advisory firm, really thought forward thinking guy. And um, he was telling me that they had like their annual kind of advisor meeting. And one of the advisors stood up and it goes back to your what I think of. Under the hood, I think a lot of this tech, it's all going to look the same, but where you can really differentiate a niche is like, how is it branded? And he said he had an advisor that stood up and said, look, I don't need better stuff. I just need different stuff. And and I thought that was an interesting perspective. You know, I think the firms that are going to be able to put these things together and then, you know, brand it and be able to differentiate from that perspective are going to be the ones that win. You know, as we wrap up, I want to ask you a couple of more questions and then we can end the episode. So this is the whole goal of this podcast is to make ERISA fiduciaries smarter. So what would be your single best piece of advice for ERISA fiduciaries, whether that's a plan sponsor or whether that's a, you know, a fiduciary advisor, what would be your single best piece of advice for them to do a better job in their role as a fiduciary? It's a tough one for me because I like, I'm obsessed with that, right? Like, so my newsfeed, my email inbox, like my thoughts in my head are always on these types of concepts. So it's hard for me to kind of think of someone who's not, But so I guess my only advice would be really simple advice, which is you have to make an effort, like an organized effort to stay on top of this stuff. And so I guess my advice to the industry would be, and I know there's some of these things starting or they've been around for a little while is, but they just fall dead because the plan sponsors don't want to be fiduciaries. They don't want to continue to be good fiduciaries and learn more as a, in general, but as education, right, is <laughs> I laugh even saying it, but this is my answer to it is we have to teach our plan sponsors on an ongoing basis, almost like certify them, give them designations. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings with large plans with a committee of 10 and they're asking you the same questions they asked you the year before, you know, and it's like, no one right. here has learned right. shit from last year. And therefore, how can they do their <laughs> right. job? And so I think it's important for advisors to maybe add that to their kind of service model, which is like one, I'm here to guide you all, but I'm also here to like make you better at what you do. And so I'm going to hold you accountable as a committee, right? I'm going to teach you things. And I know you wouldn't do this, but metaphorically, it's like, and then I'm going to quiz you. And when I come back next year, 
if you haven't retained this stuff, like you're going to sit in the corner with a hat on, with a dunce hat on, because I need you guys to be on sharp and on your game as fiduciary. So, anyway. I love it. I love it. Good, good, sound advice. Not realistic, but good. Sorry. For, for 401k nerds, it is. You know, if, if only, I always say, if, you know, I'll get my last little perspective in here. Most, and I agree with you. I, I, no, no book plug here. No, you've shamed me into it. I might, I'm, I might not mention the book. Ah, who am I kidding? I'll mention, I'll, I'll find another ways to mention it. But if most companies ran their businesses the way they ran their 401k plan, they would be out of business. And so that I think to your point is companies just need to, to, you know, part of that education is that people speak, tell you the truth much more with their actions than with their words. And part of what we need to do as an industry, I'm very passionate about is getting plan sponsors and companies who at the end of the day have huge influence over what retirement looks like for their people. They need to kind of raise their game and they need to own kind of the responsibility more. Once they do, they'll start to align their actions with what they start to believe. But until they start to believe in the importance of this, it's going to be hard to get them to change their behavior. Where can listeners stay connected with J.D. Carlson and plan sponsor consultants and or plan design consultants and retireholics? What's the best way to stay connected with you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy these days, right? I mean, if you just pop my name into Google, you know, a bunch of crap comes up. You're so big time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just, you have a pretty, we focus pretty hard on social media presence. So it's all out there, like, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, cool. obviously plandesign.com, retireholics.com. Retireholics is on YouTube. Plan Design Consultants, JD Carlson and Retireholics are on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. You name it. So uh, TikTok. So yeah, that's it. Are you yeah. seriously on TikTok? Retireholics is on, t- Retireholics is on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. I think we have five followers. <laughs> LinkedIn. I, that's I feel awesome. Like if you're supposed to, you're supposed to tune in to, to me, my thoughts, plan design consultants, Retireholics, LinkedIn is, is really our main focus. That's where we're at. Okay. Here's what we're going to do at the end of the show, uh, like I do with most episodes in the show notes. I am going to link to pretty much any resource I can find to direct them to you and to your team. And I just really appreciate you being on the show. This was was one of my more exciting kind of uh, or episodes I was really looking forward to. I think you've got great insights. I think you've you've done a phenomenal job of making 401k much more fun and interesting. And you've done a lot of great work to kind of serve, you know, certainly advisors, but the industry in general. So I can't thank you enough for what you've done and, and for kind of sharing your insights with the Fiduciary You audience. Thanks for listening to today's episode with J.D. Carlson. If you'd like more information or learn more, go to FiduciaryU.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode, along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show when I read each one. And until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast.
now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.